interesting question here from Arthur LaRocque, and I'm going to direct this to you, John Keshon. He says that there's evidently many challenges, but is there evidence that political and civic actors are working together to respond or to overcome any of the challenges that are coming up? Now, John Keshon, you work in civil society, you're involved in the coalition around observing elections, and I've also been involved in youth coalitions. What are some of the approaches that are coming out from civic actors in Uganda? I think Arthur is raising a very important question about the future of this country. Because one of the challenges we have is that we all either claim or we love this country so much that at times we find it hard to collaborate and work with others. For example, if you look at the political actors at the moment who are aspiring to get themselves out and get into government and provide the kind of leadership that this country aspires for, you see them not collaborating and working together. You see, for example, the um, FDC and the factions that happened and how to split forming the anti-group and, and the FDC. If you look at the, um, the people power movement and how it is relating with the other actors and FDC and others, if you look at the DP, you see a country that is not willing to unite and cause the change that they want to see. And I'll give you a, a vivid example. In Kasese, where I come from, you have a strong candidate on an FDC ticket. Why would a DP or any other candidate stand against this strong candidate? In terms of collaborations, I think we have not scored highly in terms of bringing the forces of change together. And also in civil society, of course, there are some initiatives, for example, around election observation, but I still see that we can do better than that. And so you have so many different uh, initiatives, some group is doing civic education, some group is doing observation. I think we still have a lot to do in terms of pooling our resources, in terms of pulling our energies together and cause the change that we want to see. Otherwise, as for now, I also get a feeling that people, for example, in the political class, are just interested in grabbing the power for themselves are not willing to provide the leadership that this country wants. Because at the end of the day, we have to look at inclusion. So even if you are 70% of the youth, even if you are 70% of the country, if you have 70% of the support, but, and you take power, but you don't collaborate with the 25%, then the 25% will not feel included, and for me, we will not have achieved. So in terms of working together, I think we are scoring badly. If you followed the conversations uh, in 2016, that was the same who tried to put up a vehicle TDA that brought different actors, it collapsed. I think as a country, we're not scoring well on coalitions and collaborating and stuff like that. So yes, Arthur is right to raise this very important question. And I think it is a question that we need to discuss what exactly do you want? Do you want power for ourselves or we want power for all of us? Thank you. Thank you, John Kershon. Irene, I'll come to you and I'd like you to do two things. One is to weigh in on some of the responses that have been coming up from the rest of the panelists, but also to, to look at the question that we had posed earlier about the challenges with asking voters using uh, technology from a gender lens. Now you have that a lot of women who choose to stand on the women MP ticket, which means that you have a lot more ground to cover than the constituency tickets. An example is Kampala. Kampala has nine constituencies. 
but one woman MP. So she has to cover nine constituencies versus, you know, the nine positions. How do you see that affecting women's participation? But also if you have any thoughts that have come out in response to what the other panelists have been sharing. Yeah, thank you. I think that's a really important question that's been going through my mind. How women are organized, women as candidates, women as voters, women as a constituency. So for example, say the women's movement, are we organized to support women trying to access leadership, you know, promoting women in leadership? I mentioned earlier that the important thing about elections, one is looking to have individuals in leadership who will represent one's issues who will represent you as a group or also represent the, the concerns that you have, whether those concerns are around taxation or health services by the government, how the government deals with issues that people are interested in. It might be agriculture, it may, whatever it is. And women have very specific issues as well, you know, in all of those, you know, relating to, to women's health, you know, relating to the kind of roles women play in the family support, women's status. So the challenges that uh, many women have been facing, and now we're seeing that, first of all, majority of women candidates tend to run on the seat reserved for women. Uh, we have 238 constituencies, that's open seats, and we have 112 for women representatives. So majority of women tend to run for those. There are a few, and in this election, it looks like there's an increased number, especially of younger women, you know, women coming more from youth, who are going for open constituencies. And this may be at parliamentary level, but also at the local council level. Now, the challenges that women have face if they run for the seat reserved for women is that they, as you mentioned, they will be covering a much wider constituency. They have to cover an entire district and they have to find ways of reaching this entire district. Pre-COVID, many women talked about the cost of campaigns and access to the entire district, while the primary, the male counterparts would be focusing on a sub-county. So uh, geographically, the, the, the area they would have to cover was much broader. But apart from that, there were other barriers, and those barriers still continue even now. I've heard from women candidates, especially those who are going for the seats that are not reserved for women, about barriers to do with the population, with the voters. Uh, there's one candidate in particular who's talked to me about how even in her own party, and she won the primary in her own party uh, on an open seat, but even within the own party, there's hostility um, towards her and sometimes from voters, but sometimes from other candidates, you know, campaigning and saying she should have stuck to the quote unquote woman's seat. So why is she coming into the quote unquote men's seat? So that's sort of bias um, that, that is faced by women candidates who go into the constituency seats. And then you find the other challenge that a lot of women talk about, regardless of which one they're going for, is around the social networks. Um, so the social networks that they may have access to may not necessarily be the same. These may be people like opinion leaders in their community and who you'll find by and large are largely male. So the challenges that, that women face continue even now with this so-called scientific election. The other thing is around the costs. So the cost of elections is quite high. And for women candidates, overall, it is said that the face of poverty is female and young. So more young people do not have the same kind of financial resources than older people. And likewise, women generally, there are exceptions, yes, but in general, you find that, that women tend to have fewer financial resources. If they do not have support 
within their social setting in their family or within the wider clan, then that also cuts off additional sources of support that they may have you know, to beef up their financing. Over time, we've seen that elections in Uganda have gotten more and more expensive. And this hits groups like women and youth even much more. I've seen on various platforms, especially women's platforms, where women candidates are saying, look, can we have support? The, the question then comes other groups. Primarily, I would say the groups I come from, you know, where women's groups, how can we try and mobilize to support uh, women candidates more? And the support including uh, financial support, but also other forms of support. Uh, for example, you'll find dealing with some of the psychosocial issues coming from encountering patriarchy in their campaigns. Psychologically, these women get hit quite a lot. And the ones I've talked to, you'll find that they often feel not just frustrated, but actually disempowered by the kind of, of responses that they encounter purely because they are female. One other area that bears thinking about, and for Raymond and, and others who are in the media, is around media portrayal. So you'll find that when you have a female candidate, quite often the way in which they are presented to the public through media is not the same. With the male candidates, the focus is more on their attributes relevant to leadership. You know, what kind of experience they have had, what kind of leadership role they have played. I've seen uh, several of women where they'll say, oh, she is married and she has children. Nothing about the experience she's had, the work that she's done, her qualities, the kind of resources as a person that she brings because of her leadership qualities, very little about that. Sometimes it even gets worse. You know, it can get very sexist, you know, talking about how pretty she is or how well turned out she is, which really demeans and takes away from a potential voter looking at this person as a leader and judging them purely on leadership abilities. So for women candidates, often dealing with those sorts of things is quite difficult and it impacts on them at a personal level, you know, even on their sense of self-worth. So I think there's a role that opinion leaders need to play differently. There's a role that we as women within the women's movement can also play to support. And we have been having discussions around how to do that and, and actually I, I find that many women, even individual women within women's movement, are actually supporting, including supporting financially to women candidates to try and help them to overcome these barriers and these biases that they will find. Thank you. Irene, thank you so much for that. That's such a substantive mm -hmm. response. I appreciate mm -hmm. it. There's an interesting question coming in from Emily Sample, and, and Dr. Ruiz, I'd like you to try and respond to it. It's that how is civil society working to prevent election violence, both from citizens and the police? Now, in the 2016 election, there was a lot of concern about whether there'd be violence from the police side because of amount of recruitment that was done of young persons into the police and the military outfits but also there were pockets of violence that came out. So Dr. Ruveza, can you weigh in on whether civil society is doing enough to prevent violence in this next one? Thank you very much, Irene, for this question. Yes, indeed, I acknowledge that there is a role that civil society can play, and this role is especially in civic education, but also it's a role that can be played, especially those who have a legal background or who have legal options or legal interventions to seek the intervention of the courts of law. But also civil society is empowered with the rare ability to do a lot of lobbying on behalf of the citizenry. 
Legal Aid Service Providers Network has decided to take on what they have called rapid response, whereby in case there is violence being meted out against the citizens, they have lawyers on call who immediately rush to the place, apply for bail, apply for bond, advise the policemen on the rights of the citizens, as well as the liabilities of those officers who have taken the law in their hands. Why I think that this is critical is that many times voters or the electorate are locked up and the key is almost literally thrown away until the election season is over. And so this comes in very handy and for that we give credit to the ED and her team at Legal Aid Service Providers Network. Other organizations, I belong to Uganda Christian Law Fraternity, there's Muslim Center for Justice, among others, have been public defenders. Uganda Law Society, Legal Aid Department have all been on hand. We've seen pictures of uh, the president wall of ULS newly elected. Uh, running around, even to save fellow lawyers from arrest. Of recent, we've had more lawyers being arrested instead of being given the opportunity to do their work. And in spite of the court ruling that lawyers should be allowed to do their job, and sometimes the job of the lawyer is not favorable to the security officers, but that is why it is there. And I think time has shown us that oftentimes lawyers will represent you and have represented those policemen and security officers who have also fallen foul of the law who have been in conflict with the law. Now, when we talk about lobbying, there is a lot of lobbying work which civil society can do and that they have done. Among things that have been happening is lobbying for the passing of the legal aid policy and how that is very critical in supporting citizens that get into conflict with the law conversations and supporting those who like to participate in the electoral space by giving them advice and teaching them about the law. Uganda Christian Lawyers Fraternity has been engaging in talking to policemen about rights and liabilities of officers. And even more critically, we have seen the passing of the new Human Rights Enforcement Act, which is very critical to the security officers to know that you will be taken on personally for the actions that you do that go against the ambit of the law. And so there's been active presence. I've seen an increase in the participation of civil society in helping both the security officers, but also the citizens in appreciating their rights, but also a push towards acknowledging the liabilities. What we've not done too much that I may say is civic education, which I think needs to continually be done. And of course, this is a big picture. It needs a lot of work and COVID-19 does not make it any easier, especially with uh, limitation in how much space you can have to do the same. But I can see there have been a lot of innovation regarding a use of other teaching methods, other learning methods, other information dissemination methods, like the FIDA Uganda and other organizations have been doing a lot of policy papers. And even within the space of the organizations themselves, they've had to relearn how to do many of these things. So the fact that we do not have enough funding has kind of limited the amount of work which civil society is able to do. I mean, I've been contacted by some organizations to do certain work for them, but when lockdown came in, all that came to a halt. And that has come at the expense of the electorate not being able to be availed 
with the knowledge that is necessary for them in this time. So I guess my last comment would be that as civil society, we are excited in some spaces to see some members of parliament, like the Honorable Yandro, who comes from civil society, being able to enter into parliament and be able to present those long-held, stark views that civil society has been trying to promote. But I cannot stop this without mentioning what work you're doing, Irene. And I think we've had this conversation with you, Irene, in your work, uh, especially as Parliamentary Watch, in helping disseminate the conversations, the talks, the debates that happen in Parliament. I think that has been critical work that you've done, especially the Twitter updates and so on, which together you can see that civil society has tried with the limitations that are available to them. Thank you, Irene. Irene, could I add one element to that? I think Daniel's really given a very good elaboration of what's going on. Just two things. One of them is about training that relates to women candidates. So training of women candidates is something that's been quite strong, done by women's rights organizations, the ones that work on democracy. There's a group of organizations, about four of them, focusing on that. Forwarde, Ackford, Uonet, and the Women's Democracy Network. They're organized under the Women's Democracy Group. And they collaborate with other women's rights organizations to do the training on the legal ones like FIDA and so on, on different elements so that uh, women candidates can navigate the electoral rules and also can learn how to speak, you know, how to reach their potential voters. That's really critical. And the second one, which is important, and this connects to the question around election violence as well, that you asked earlier on, is around monitoring. So besides the observation, there is a facility that's being applied in, I think this is the third election now in Uganda. It's called the Women's Situation Room, which is an initiative that started in Liberia by a woman activist from Liberia, but who has marketed it to different African countries. So that is a facility where women candidates, but also women voters and others can call in to the organizations participating in that center. It's called the Women's Situation Room, which monitors what is happening. It connects to the law enforcement agencies to bring the reports of the complaints about abuses and so on all around the country to flag it to the relevant authorities, whether it's the police, if it's a complaint about a police action or the military or whatever, whichever group it is of government that a complaint has been called in about. So they have set up for this round of elections as well. And women are encouraged to call in from around the country to that center and report when there's been abuses during the election. And lastly, on the issue of human rights defenders, that is, is really critical. It also is important to know that there are groups of women human rights defenders as well, because in some cases, the election offenses that happen against women are skewed or are biased or driven by their gender. So recently, there was one going around on social media where it was alleged, it hasn't been established to be factual, but it was alleged that a, a woman candidate was being told by her family not to use a family name her husband's name because they did not want her to be in politics, that sort of thing. That is not a kind of thing that a male candidate would encounter. So dealing with the women's human rights defenders as well to recognize and address the violations that women candidates experience or other women experience because they're women. So for example, if arrests are done and a female, a woman candidate or a woman in a crowd is lifted up and her skirts are lifted up, that is not the kind of thing that you see happening to men. So it is, it's something that is done to target women, you know, and embarrass a female specifically, using her gender or her sex to embarrass her even more. So the issue of women rights, human rights defenders is also as, as critical.
Thank you, Irene. Just to weigh in on the issue of election observing, because I know you're a member of an observation mission ahead of 2021. We have a question from Thomas Mbajwe that's coming in. And he's asking, how will this pandemic affect election observation? So what are the conversations within the election observation mission, John Keshon? How will the pandemic affect it? And how will you ensure election inclusion or transparency? Of course, even the initiative itself was founded largely because of the pandemic, knowing that we might have failures. I mean, we might fail to get, for example, international observers because of the lockdown. So civil society organizations are led by the NGO Forum led us into uh, into an initiative, organizing a local initiative where we local citizens can be able to observe the elections. And we've been observing the elections, starting with the voter register, the exercise of registering voters. We're able to observe this, and uh, there's a report that we're able to share some of the findings that came out from the exercise. For example, the number of young people that were left out of the register and stuff like that, we have been able to observe the NRM primaries, including the violence that you saw happening in, in the primaries. There is a report that has been done around that, which can be used by other civil society organizations. But also, of course, the challenge has also been around financing this kind of initiative. As the doctor mentioned, currently, because of the pandemic, there are also challenges of funding civil society. So you find that we are getting the election, you are two months towards an election, and people are still in the boardrooms discussing which initiative to support and which initiative not to support, yes. But largely it's around having local observers move to the polling stations and see what is happening. And, and again, remember that observation is somehow different from monitoring. You can observe, make your judgment, but you're not supposed to, for example, if, if you go to a polling station and you see something going wrong, you don't raise it there and then and go to the polling officials and say, oh, you are supposed to do it like this, or you're supposed not to do it like this. So likely, yes, there's an initiative local by civil society organizations trying to see if they can observe the elections. And of course, there are challenges, how it is going to look like because of the facial distancing. So you're likely to have one person maybe go to a polling station, another person is sent to another polling station. But because of funding, I see, for example, in a district, you have like maybe four, three or four observers observing the election and then uh, sending the information to, there's a form you fill, you send it to Kampala, uh, to the NGO forum, and there's a large team that's very technical that is working around that. But what is important is to know that this initiative is bringing different civil society actors together to be able to do some work around observing the elections. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, John Keshon. Raymond, you know, I thought that maybe you could also give us a journalist perspective on any strategies to avoid or prevent violence during the election. I know that when a lot of people Google Ugandan election violence, I think some of the prominent pictures that come up are either Dr. Kiza Besige in his uh, signature blue hoodie and also just violence against journalists. Are there any strategies coming in from the journalist associations or something around either coverage of violence or preventing violence in the next election? Thank you so much, Irene, for that question. For journalists, there's two types of violence. There's first of all, violence directed towards journalists because of the role that we play in a democracy like ours, which is literally to bring to light as much information or as many things that are happening in the election as possible. And some of those things sometimes include electoral malpractices. And so there's violence meted out against journalists for things like that. But there's also the broad scale violence, which is people do not deem the electoral process fair. And thereafter, the outcome of the election 
then cannot be a fair outcome. And they use alternative means of dispute resolution, which sometimes include violence. So in, in both scenarios, the first scenario, which is violence meted out against reporters and journalists, we've been having engagement with particularly security organizations because they are the biggest action points of this violence and impressing upon them the role that the media serves in a democracy and the role that the media serves in an electoral contest. And the idea we get from them for now is that they have a huge manpower of security services which are out there who have little to no understanding of human rights, little to no understanding of of the role of the media in an election, and who are trained to use violence as the first form of resort in any kind of dispute. So even if you were two people and a tear gas canister is meant to disperse large crowds of over 10,000 people, it's very often than not a police officer will throw a canister at you. Even if you are protesting non-violently, it's more often than not you will see a police officer firing rounds of ammunition into protesters. So there's a role which we play, which is to inform. And part of that information is to our members of security services on human rights of individuals, but also the rights that they enjoy, particularly in an electoral process. But in terms of the broad scale of violence, we'd have to sense ourselves, for example, the way the Kenyan media did during 2007-2008 and 2013, would have to carry out broad censorship for the process to be seen to be fair. And I don't think that that's a trade-off the media wants to make. So the idea is how much of responsible information can be out in the hands of voters during an electoral process so that they can adjudge that process to be fair and thereafter contest the results of whatever outcome might have come, either in a court of law or in a dispute resolution that doesn't involve violence. And that's really a role that journalism has very little to play. As the media, we offer platforms for people who are peace advocates. We offer platforms for people who are, in some cases, violence advocates. And our job is now to stop the people who are advocating for violence from accessing platforms or from using platforms to call out communities into forms of violence. But already we've seen in the NRM primary elections, for example, there was a lot of violence, whether that be gun violence, whether that be use of sticks and stones, fighting, use of manipulation, misinformation. All these forms of violence happened during the the NRM primary. And we are really worried about what might come out of the national election, which is a more contested affair than the primaries were. But also generally, it doesn't take a blind man to see that the outcome of the election, even if that election is conducted as free and fairly as possible, is going to pit the young against the people in power because the key electoral points for one of the candidates in the election, who is Robert Chagulani, is that young people have been locked out of positions of influence and as such, they've been denied opportunity. And the incumbent in the race doesn't help matters with his age which we don't know, but it doesn't help matters that it's, it's an old versus young race. So at the end of the electoral contest, the outcome of that election, even carried out very fairly, it would require a huge amount of understanding on the part of the public to interpret those results in the way that they want to, considering that the process has already started in what many people think is an unfair way. So it's a matter of debate. It's a matter of context out there, but our role as journalists is to bring 
as much responsible information to the public as we can. And are we going to sense ourselves like the Kenyan media did in 2007, 2008? Maybe we've learned a couple of lessons, but does that mean censorship? That's another debate that we, we have as newsrooms on a day-to-day -day basis, on a case-to-case -case basis. Thank you so much, Raymond. And I think we've had such a substantive discussion. I want to slowly start to wind our conversation down. I want to wind it down by asking all panelists to give me a prediction of what they think the election is going to look like, this particular election, and what you advise us all to, to keep our eye on. If there was one thing we should focus on, what should it be for this particular election? But before that, I, want, I have two questions that I think are both directed to you, Irene. The first is from Thomas Mbajwe, which is, what are the ongoing conversations around extending voting access to Ugandans in the diaspora worldwide? And the second question is from Christo Moniz, which is, what role do you predict or recommend that the African Union and other regional bodies take to push for free and fair elections? Thank you. Hard to say on the first one, to, to be honest. I haven't really been part of conversations that are talking about extending the voting rights to Ugandans as a diaspora. But just looking at how it works in other countries that have that sort of thing, basically, I think it would involve legal reforms, first of all, to cater for that through legislation, and then setting up the facilities for it. In uh, countries where they do have voting from the diaspora, it is done through their missions abroad. So setting up facilities, having registers of citizens living abroad and collaboration between the mission and the election body in the country so that you have the, the list of voters and so on. So there's quite a lot of infrastructure involved in that. What is important in it is ensuring equal access. I would say ensuring the integrity of the process. And currently I'm in the U.S. and I'm looking at how they are concerned here, you know, in the, the U.S. election, which is next week, around the perception that's been created around mail-in voting, you know, about ballot participating in the, in the vote, um, not physically. So those are some of the things around election integrity that have to be dealt with if one is looking at ensuring participation of Ugandans abroad. I don't see anything in the near future around that as yet, but I think more time needs to be invested in ensuring that if there's a shift towards that, it is the integrity of the vote is, is what is secured. And we, we all know that that is often a major challenge. Sorry, Irene, what is the second issue that you raised? The second question? Would be around the recommendations for the African Union and okay. other international bodies um, right. around free elections. Yeah. Right. And of course, one of our panelists already talked about the COVID effect, you know, that likely because of lockdown measures, they may not be international observers. I was supposed to participate in international observation. It was a, a Caribbean country. I think it was Trinidad and Tobago a couple of months ago and with the Commonwealth we were not able to, to do it because of the same thing. Now the lockdown measures are beginning to ease and some international travel has started again. So it is possible that in our case that there may be, because the election is slightly over two months from now, it may be possible that that will happen. But with the observation of elections from regional and international bodies, the preparation starts much earlier. There are some like the EU who have long-term observers, you know, what they call long-term, and is looked at as long-term compared to others, where you can have 
observers for some months in the country out of recognition that often the flaws in an election are the things that happen in the preparation, in the sort of ground that is prepared, whether the ground is level or not, in the lead up to elections. So not just what happens on election day or the week before or immediately after. So the longer term observations is really critical and the time for that has really passed. But even for shorter term observations, like the type that you have with the African Union, or with the East African community, I have participated in a couple of those as well when I was in Iyala, or with the Commonwealth Observation Mission. There is some preparation that has to happen before, including getting the credentialing and some agreements that are made between the organization that descended observers and the, and the government and meetings that are held with various bodies. So that kind of thing may be a challenge. Here, it may be there for that we see more of the regional bodies like say maybe the East African community playing a role, a stepped up role because they are closer and Uganda is a member of those bodies. So hopefully their engagement and entry into this space will be smoother because of that. But the major role that I would expect for such bodies for regional economic blocks within Africa is also around setting of standards, is ensuring that they have instruments relating to issues around democracy and governance that set standards of expectation for their members. So that by the members, I'm talking about the countries like Uganda that are members of those. And I remember with the East African Community Treaty at a time when it was being drafted in the late 90s that a number of us from the women's movement engaged with the East African Community Foreign Ministers then and with the East African Community Secretary General was a Kenyan, to push, successfully actually push for certain principles in the treaty, for example, around fundamental principles of the treaty that would encompass issues of democracy, issues of governance, issues of human rights. Those were not in the treaty prior to that engagement and lobbying by women's movement actors around 97, 98. So for regional blocks, it's important that those kind of requirements are built into their constitutive instruments like the treaties and that you have other protocols and so on that then apply how will this principle requiring democracy in your members, requiring good governance in your members, how will that be implemented? How will that be rolled out? How will that be applied? And the East African community has got some of those kind of protocols. So I would think now with the COVID issue and the likely absence of many other international observers that the, the role of the regional blocks is even more critical. The other observers who you sometimes see coming in are from the missions, so bilateral missions that are already in place in the country. So maybe it's the U.S. Embassy or any other embassy. And again, it would be good to see more of even see the African missions playing these sorts of roles and trying to bring certain standards of expectation into the countries that are part of the AU. One last thing I want to say about this, Irene, around the point I made earlier, substantively, what are elections about? They're really about a choice of leaders to govern the country and make decisions about development and issues that will impact directly. There was a mention of the OTT tax earlier on that will pass legislation to ensure that the legislation and the budgets that are passed support the development needs of the country and of groups that are traditionally vulnerable or marginalized, including women and youth, persons with disability and so on. So it's about leadership, who is going to lead. It's not just about who gets into office, but what are their plans for the country after that? How are they going to lead the country? How are they going to ensure that the country's development is secured and is done in a way that is inclusive for everybody? The substantive impact of elections is something that we really need to think about and voters need to always think about and not succumb to things like bribery and so on, 
because then that distorts what happens afterwards because the candidate will say i already paid you you know i already bribed you so after this i'm now recouping the money that i spent and i don't owe you i'm not accountable to you anymore i paid you 500 shillings or 5000 shillings so voters really need to think about that and ensure that the selection is motivated by the kind of leadership that will come out afterwards thank you so much irene i'll get some final words as well from the rest of our panel so I did ask a question, you know, what what do you see the prediction coming out for the 2021 elections and what do you think is the most important issue we should focus on? Raymond, we'll go to you first. Thank you so much, Irene. Thank you so much for this conversation. It's a really timely conversation. Amongst the things that I'd really love great focus to be put on is the size and burgeoning size of electoral offices in Uganda. For the first time now, we're having close to 1.8 million electoral posts in Uganda. And that that means a great deal for the taxpayer. And we're going to have a conversation now or even in the very near future on how much of these electoral offices are actually improving service delivery rather than actually take away actual resources that are needed for growth and development of the country. This election is also the most contested election in the history of the country. For the members of parliament, the numbers that we're getting from the Electoral Commission now indicate that you have anywhere between 12,000 and 13,000 candidates for just about 449 electoral posts within parliament. That's a real measure. So it's going to be important for us to understand what is it about our parliament that is attracting all this number of people who are contesting for it. Is it the money? Is it the fact that there's actual legislative change that they're seeking? Or is it now a proper economic opportunity that people are taking charge and chance of? We're going to have a conversation on the young voters in this election. Over 70% of the voters were coming, 7 in 10 of voters coming to this election are voting for their first time ever. They've never seen what a ballot paper looks like. They don't know how the ballot process looks like. They don't know what it means to wake up early in the morning, stand on the line and get to vote. So it's also going to be a reorientation for us in democracy for those young people. And it's going to be a definitive moment for them. Whatever happens during the electoral process will then become how they define democracy for years to come. So those are the things that we should very pertinently focus on during the electoral cycle. Thank you so much, Raymond, and thanks for joining the panel. Jun Keshon, what's your prediction for the election and what should be focused on? I think for me, the most fundamental thing that the country needs to focus on is a peaceful transfer of power from one president to another that we haven't seen. All the mansions you are building in Kampala, everything you have can be destroyed in a single day if we don't focus on having a peaceful transition of power in this country. The lacuna that is in the law that allows, the, for example, the incumbent to be able to appoint the electoral commission I think it's something that should change. Because if you look at the status quo now, is that the president is the one who appoints the electoral commission for an election in which he's going to participate. And we've had threats, for example, from some of the members of the military saying, we cannot allow the young people to take power without and stuff like that. But also you hear largely the young people saying, we're not interested in the Bush talks or how we went with the Bush and things like that. That points to a bigger issue that we might likely have violence and that if our future is not certain, if political transition in this country is, is not certain, we are likely to waste all the resources that we have put up. So I think as a country, we need to focus on seeing a peaceful transfer of power from one leader, from one generation to another. Thank you. 
Thank you very much, John Keshon, and thanks for joining the panel. Dr. Rueza? Thank you, Irene, and thank you to my fellow panelists. The conversation has been quite in, quite educative for me. Uh, there are some angles I had not seen, and I'm most grateful to the organizers and to Irene for this. I would focus on two things. The first one is that the young people are digital citizens. The place where you have taken the campaign is the place where the young people are citizens. And so yeah, it's probably one of the reasons as to why you see the head of state of the nation has gone to engage them where they are citizens. Two, I suspect we'll have more amendments coming up before the election because COVID-19 has created certain situations that make it very difficult for a free and fair election to happen and making the work of the Electoral Commission extremely difficult. So I think we might have more amendments coming in, a backtracking on some of the provisions or the policies or the guidelines, the SOPs that have been provided by the Electoral Commission to make it just possible for people to vote. We've already seen it now. It used to be strictly scientific. Now they are saying that we need to have at least 70 people uh, being engaged. So I see the Electoral Commission having to make certain amendments to make the work of the Electoral Commission, the citizens and the candidates better. And lastly, we need to watch the electronic system that has been put into law. The law now requires for the use of technology. And so we need to be clearly up to scale regarding what type of technology, how is it going to be done? Who is doing the backhand work in this technology? That is something really to watch and probably will be the determinant of the final result. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you very much, Dr. Ruga. So thank you everyone for joining us and thank you so much to the Rift Valley Institute for convening this panel. I think it's been very exciting. And I'll hand over back to you, Pauline, to, uh, to wrap this up. Yeah, thank you very much, Irene, and thank you to the panelists as well for a very interesting and engaging conversation this afternoon. Of course, a few things that I picked up along the way, you know, this being the most contested elections in Ugandan history, and the key things that we need to be looking at or paying attention to. Of course, having been here during the last Kenyan elections, I mean, the use of technology that Dr. Ruhenza talks about is something that I think Ugandans should really look at and, and understand as we were left um, a bit perturbed when uh, we couldn't access the servers or find out you know, what the result actually was. I think, Irene, when you talk about you know, substantive representation and the impact of elections, I think it is something that the civic education should really be pushing. And we always you know, have a lot of money being put in elections, you know, a year or so leading up to elections. But as you say, there's five years where so much could be done. And very interesting also, you know, look, talking about the Women's Situation Room brings me to a documentary that I watched that the backing Alexandria Cortez got in America as she was um, campaigning and getting into politics. It was really well organized and there was a real organization and system behind her. Although she came up organically, I mean, I think politics is a juggernaut that can either eat you up, roll over you, or you stand out of its way. And I think having that kind of structure behind, especially female uh, politicians or female aspirants is really good. 
then of course with financing and that Raymond talks about, you know, access to platforms for campaigning, that is really, really also important. And this intergenerational tension that uh, John Cation talks about is also something interesting to watch. And I think it's something the whole region is going through as the old guard goes and, you know, the younger generation is quite <coughs> um, to come in. So I think a lot of things going on, interesting things to look at, an interesting time, of course, in the region and indeed in Uganda. And would be also very interested to see, you know, succession politics in the region. People do not live forever, but, you know, also seeing that transition of power and how that will play out. So um, thank you very much for an engaging um, conversation. Thank you to our participants who spent the afternoon with us. Irene from New York, thank you so much for accepting our invitation and for waking up early. Um, Asante Sana. And have a good afternoon. And from the Rifali Institute and Henrik Paul Foundation, thank you and have a good day.